The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we bless you for kindly revealing to us your holy standard, your clear law, that we can know who you are and we can know what it means to be holy and pure and right, and so therefore learn about ourselves. It is a gracious and kind work that you do with your law, as that song we just sang, Lord, it wonderfully pictures the deception of our own hearts, the illumination from your law that draws love and joy for the gift of your Son and His blood. Oh, bless your name. Bless your name. You are kind to show us our need and kind then to meet it. We see in this passage that we'll look at today how there was a great need in David like there is in us. Even us who believe already there is a great need and you were kind to meet it, to preserve him. You saved him and you kept him. You save us and you keep us. Bless your name for your kindness to us. Lord, as we open the word here, would you give us insight into it by your spirit? Help us to understand and to follow through many verses and many twists and turns in the text. Help us to follow it through to understand central issues. And Lord, as you speak to our minds, would you, would you teach and, and explain and illumine and make clear so as to change us? to transform us as our minds are illumined and renewed. Help, Lord. Please help. We need You. We look to You. We ask, Lord, I ask for Your Spirit to move on on us here today as was already prayed. Would You, by Your Spirit, change us? Would You pour out Your Spirit on us, Father, that You would be honored, the Son would be lifted up in And what He does, be it ever so subtle, the Son would be lifted up, seen, known, worshipped to the glory of God the Father. Make that happen now, Lord, as we open Your Word. Open it before us. Teach us from it. Build us and change us for our good and for Your great glory. Pray in the name of Jesus, the Savior You have sent. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 25 where we see a variation on the theme presented to us last week in chapter 24. It actually continues on through the next through these three chapters here 24, 5 and 6. David sparing life. Last week he was pursued by King Saul into the region of Engedi near the Dead Sea. And one day in the course of events, David was presented, as we saw, with a golden opportunity. He had a chance laid out before him to bring to an end all of the years of trouble. This has been going on for years now. He had a chance to bring to an end all of the years of trouble, the chasing, the the running, all the hunger and the fear and the, the pain, the worry that he faced day and day out, and to bring in the positive, that which he knew he had been promised. He knew that he had been promised the kingdom of God and the right to all of the privileges, to, to the honor, to the rule, to, to a bed to sleep in and food to eat. He had been promised all those things, and he had a chance then to bring to an end the bad and to bring in the good if he would only commit one very small reasonable sin. To murder this evil king reasonable he's evil but sin because he's the lord's anointed and david saw that laid before him and saw it for what it was a test 
to see if he would endure evil and return good instead, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he restrained those around him who wanted him to, to kill Saul and, in, and said, no, I have the one at my side who is the judge who will take care of me. He trusted the Lord. And that, that's us too. That's for us too. We have the one at our side who is the judge who will take care of us. And we are to trust him to carry us to, in his time, in his way, all the kingdom blessings that he has promised. Don't sin. and Take a shortcut you think leads you there, but which just leads you to death. That was the text last week. It ended with Saul going home and David remaining in the wilderness, which brings us to chapter 25, our text this week. David, active in the wilderness, engaged in another story along these same lines, but with a twist. This week, same sort of thing, but this week he has to be restrained. This week... The shoe's on the other foot, and he finds himself in need of someone to come and save him from taking life. So we're going to see, and as we look at it, we're going to see something precious about God, the God who keeps his people from sin. So we read the text. It's a long passage. I'm going to read it in, in sections and pause to make sure we follow the details. We'll read it, discuss, read, discuss, and then I'll make a couple of overarching observations. We can begin by reading 1 Samuel 25, verses 1 through 13. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Ma'an whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. They have missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Pause there. So after the chapter begins by telling us about Samuel and his death, it's going to be important in later events that we know that Samuel's died, so it tells us that here. And it, perhaps it also frightened David a little bit because he, he runs further, deeper into the wilderness to the south. And while he's there, he comes across this very rich man named Nabal. And at the moment we meet him, he's about to shear his sheep which is repeated several times in different ways because this shearing of sheep would have been a time of, of joyous ingathering because here's, here's the profit, here's the wealth from the herds brought in. A time of celebration, partying, and generosity. And so David knows of this, hears of it in the wilderness, that sheep shearing time and having been a shepherd, he knows the deal. And so he sends some men to very politely very graciously greet Nabal in his name, in David's name, to bless him with peace, peace, peace. 
and to speak humbly to him and remind him of how when his shepherds were with me and my men, they didn't miss anything. Now, notice carefully, David's not trying some extortion technique here. He's not saying, hey, we didn't rob you, so give us some stuff. One of Nabal's own servants later is going to say to Abigail, when we were with them, they they were working in unison. We were with them. They were like a wall to us day and night. They were our defenders. That's, That's the reality. And David just is very graciously, very kindly trying to say to Nabal, you shear sheep today that you still have to shear because of me. We are in need. You have plenty. So, verse 8, just can you give us whatever you have at hand to give? Very appropriate, gracious and humble. And Nabal, as we are told, is harsh and badly behaved, and probably a few other choice words were used to describe him in his life. But he hears this, and then he rudely leaves these men waiting. And then when he answers them, it would be hard to be more rude if one tried. So he probably was trying. Verse 10, he calls David a nobody. Who is David, the son of Jesse, using Saul's language? It's not possible he doesn't know who David is. Everybody in the land knows who David is. The servants know who David is. Abigail knows who David is. Everybody knows David. What he's saying is, you're nobody to me. Just before implying that you're rebellious against your master. Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. And then he manages to use the first person personal pronoun, so many times in one verse that it's impossible to miss his focus. Like Saul, he's not concerned with the Lord, not concerned with kindness and mercy and justice and, and the, the better things of the, of the law. He's concerned with me, me and my stuff, my meat, mine, me. Why should I give to who knows who you are? Everybody knows who he is. It's insulting him. Get out of here. Beat it. And so they leave, and they come back and tell David, and David has one way of dealing with that. Sword, sword, sword. Three times. Get your sword. They got their swords. David got his sword. Let's go. Pick it up in verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Abigail was introduced to us earlier as a beautiful and discerning woman, and now we see that in action, particularly the discerning part. One of Nabal's servants goes to her and says to her, I mean, literally the words are, David came to bless our master, blessed him, and our master literally shrieked at him, reviled him in screaming, railed at him. It was way wrong, way inappropriate. So Abigail, listen to that and think it through because we have a huge problem about to be on our hands here. 
do what seems good to you. We can't talk to him. And so she hears that, and she thinks it through, and hurriedly takes action. She gathers a gift of goods. Later she calls it a, a blessing. So there's blessing exchange going on. David came to bless and was cursed, and so she's going to bless. She gathers together a gift of all these provisions and sends them on ahead of her, and she then is going to go herself. And behold, verse 20, she runs into them. They were coming, and she runs into them, intercepts them just in the nick of time. She acted quickly and got there just before they arrived at the camp. Now, we don't know if the gift that went on ahead had softened David in any way, but verse 21 is placed here to emphasize his state of mind at their meeting. It's a flashback, but it's placed here to emphasize David is royally angry. Use another word there. He is upset and has sworn an oath, I'm going to kill all of them. They're dead. And here's Abigail. This is the heart of the story. 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. When the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that He has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance Himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Let's pause there. She runs into Him and hurries to humble herself. Her posture is repeatedly down, down, down. She gets off the donkey, onto her face, bowed to the ground, at his feet. Low. And as she speaks, she calls him Lord, which is unusual for a married woman to speak to someone not her husband and call him Lord, unless it's a person of rank. So she's saying something to him. I recognize that you are somebody. You are not a nobody and you are not some servant who's run away from his master. You are worthy of me, a married woman, calling you Lord 14 times. My Lord. She knows he's the one who's going to be king. And she acknowledges that repeatedly. So her posture is very very humble and very low and very filled with honor. And then when she speaks, she lays on herself all the guilt and asks him to overlook her fool of a husband. That's what Nabal's name means. As his name is, so is he. And very tactfully assuming her goal, she then brings up the Lord, the Lord, mentioning him again and again and again. Because the Lord lives and and you live, as He has restrained you, that's what what she wants, she's assuming it, as He has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. That's the issue. It's mentioned four times throughout the passage, one way or another. 
from blood guilt, from saving with your own hand, from avenging your own cause. That's who the Lord is. That's what He has done for you. And then what He will do for you, He will hold your life. This is a very, this is a precious speech, very tactful and very precious. He will hold your life in this little bundle, in His hands, in His care, and the lives of your enemies He will cast out as a stone from a sling, David. He will cast out all of the lives of your enemies like a stone thrown out of a sling, David. Remember? And when He seats you on the throne, you won't have any cause for regret and He will seat you on the throne. Remember me. It's a very tactful, powerful, stunning speech and it rocks David. He responds, verse 32, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there would not have been left in Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. The feast David should have had. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Well, David replies in blessing, his anger is gone now. He blesses the Lord for sending Abigail, blesses Abigail for keeping him from taking matters into his own hands and putting blood on his hands. Again mentions that and forgives her and sends her home. And at the right time she tells Nabal, who apparently has a stroke when he hears this, and ten days later God strikes him and kills him. When David hears that, he sees the vindication of God and blesses the Lord for avenging His cause, verse 39, and again mentions how He was kept back from wrongdoing. The story then concludes with David taking Abigail as his wife, which might have been a kindness to her. We don't know enough of the details to know if she would have inherited the estate or not. might have been a kindness to her. But even if it is a kindness to her, the text provides a little window here into a growing problem with David. David's already married to two other women. It says that Saul took away his daughter, Michal, but David didn't divorce her, and later he's going to reclaim her because she still remains his wife. He already has two wives when he takes this third one. And there's a growing problem here in David. In fact, by the time he becomes king, he has six sons by six different women. By the time he becomes king. 
we're seeing something in David that points us to the fact that he is not the one that we're looking for. There's something in him that, that reaches out and sees and, and does, it takes what he likes in violation of the law. To be clear about this, it's in violation of the law. Both the principle of the law, as Moses wrote it in, in Genesis, where a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's one plus one equaling one. And that's where Jesus and that's where Paul go back to when they teach us about what proper marriage is to look like in the New Testament. They both go back to that principle there. Paul, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, talking about how each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That's one to one. He's violating that principle, but he's also violating the direct statement of Deuteronomy 17.17. A king should not have many wives, for they will lead him astray. Yes, they did. We are not that far from Bathsheba. We are not that far from a house plagued with trouble. And we are not that far from sons who themselves decide to take whatever they want. Women and kingdoms. So we have a little window opened to us here of a problem. And it ends, it ends on, on a, a sober note in this text that points out to us we are looking for someone greater than David. He himself needs someone greater than himself, which is right in line with the whole deal of this chapter. Last chapter, David's the hero. People want to kill Saul. He fights them back. Very strong language, you recall. He holds them back. Here, somebody has to hold him back. David himself needs someone greater than David. We, like him, need someone greater than David. So we see here something that God does that, that tells us something wonderful about God's nature, about God's blessing, His hand of goodness on His people. So we see something here about what, what God is like, what He does, what He does for us, and then something about what we are to do. So let me summarize this, this chapter before I develop it into a couple of points. Let me summarize it in this main point here. It's my main my main uh, objective this morning to talk about how the Lord graciously, providentially preserves His saints by means of His promises. The Lord graciously, providentially preserves His saints by means of His promises. I'm going to make two observations to support that point. The first one is this. The Lord providentially preserves His saints from self-destructive sin. The Lord providentially preserves His saints from self-destructive sin. And by, by saints, I'm, I'm using that word in the sense that the Bible uses it, the people of God. The set-apart ones, the ones made holy by God, not, not in some special sense. This is a point I'm making that applies to the people of God. He preserves His people from self-destructive sin. That's what we see going on with David here. He preserves him. This keeping back or holding back from self-destructive sin is prominent in the chapter. It's shown, of course, that it's mentioned four different times. Verse 26, The Lord has restrained you, David, from blood guilt, from saving with your own hand. Verse 33, David blessed Abigail, who has kept me this day from blood guilt, from avenging myself with my own hands. And then 34, this time crediting the Lord, who has restrained me. 39, blessed be the Lord who avenged me and kept me back from wrongdoing. Restraining and keeping back. Again, 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 again. He was restrained and kept back because he needed to be restrained and kept back. He is in a rage. There's about to be a slaughter. There's about to be another Nob. Remember Nob? Where Saul wiped out the 85 priests and then went and wiped out everything else that drew breath. There's about to be another Nob here in anger, which would have destroyed David. 
emotionally and politically, but most importantly, spiritually. Look how the passage expresses the, the danger David's in. It's described twice as blood guilt. The guilt of shedding innocent blood. If he'd done that, if he'd, if he'd stepped into that, as, as Abigail points out in verse 31, there would have been grief and pangs of conscience on him because he would have known forever, I killed all those people for no reason. I was offended by one man and I killed them all for one, for, for one man's offense for no reason in them, no cause in them. And there would have been just a burden that he would have carried. It would have been very emotionally destructive to him and politically destructive because it would have been impossible for him to reign securely on the throne of righteousness and justice when everybody knew how he got there. But worse, the greatest problem would have been that as the law says, blood guilt, the shedding of innocent blood, brings a curse from God on the land and it would have been on David too. He is in a, in a rage here and doesn't realize the fire that he's gathered into his own hands. We look at him here stepping aside from entrusting himself to God. He's saying, I have, I've been returned evil in exchange for my good. There's an injustice that's been done. My rights have been violated. So forget you, God. I'm going to take this into my own hands and solve this injustice unjustly. But surely, right now. He's about to return evil for evil. The opposite of verse 28. He's going to leave off fighting the Lord's battles. He's going to fight his own battle. Oh, there's no sin found in you. Yes, there is because of this. He is inviting disaster upon himself in his rage. It's in a subtle hiss. There was whispered to him. You deserve more than that. Get it. Yes. Anger. The, the, the enemy in last chapter has snuck in by a different way and presented the very same thing to him. And he has picked it up and strapped it around his waist and is about to murder himself and his whole house. He's right there at the brink of disaster. It would cost him everything. The kingdom laid out and promised to him is on the table with his sword raised above it. He's about to lose it all. Disaster. And he's blind with rage and cannot see it. Bless the gracious name of God. Bless the gracious name of God who sovereignly, providentially steps in to preserve this saint, this David, from self-destruction. Bless God. He actually stepped in, if you think about it, years before when he birthed the little girl that her parents named Abigail into a home that needed money, which is probably why they married her to such a bad guy, because he was rich. And in the providence of God, she grew up learning. She grew up in an environment that developed who she was in all of her intelligence and in the gifts that God had given her. She learned how to deal with stupid men. <laughs> the providence of God. She learned what it's like, probably in year after year of pain. Can you imagine, women, what it would be like to be married to Nabal? And can you look, people of God, for the great blessing to David, to the kingdom, to the cause of God in the world? What a great blessing it was that God married her to Nabal. providentially controlled all of that and she learned about brutish and careless and arrogant men of power. And then one day the Lord notified her of a situation through an attentive servant, providentially within hearing, providentially who had the ear of Abigail. And he tells her the problem and she quickly with haste and decisiveness wisely not telling her foolish husband. 
rode off, and behold, in the nick of time met David. And down she goes on her face, on his feet, and submitted. She speaks and she pleads, she reminds, she urged, and she saved. She saved. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, Abigail, says David. You have kept me this day from blood guilt. You've kept me from killing myself and my house and the kingdom of God. You realize what's on the line here at this moment, what's on the line is not just David being ticked off at not being given some provisions. What's on the line are centuries-old statements and promises. Out of Judah will come one to whom I will give the scepter. David, you will reign. You will be the king. It's all on the line here as David is about to receive the curse of God. And she saves him. Blessed be you, Abigail. That's all Abigail. That's her thinking, her planning, her action. She's a fully engaged person. We need to see this. There's more we need to see, but we need to see at least this and not overlook it. She's a human being, and what she did mattered dramatically. This is how God so often works. By providence. That is, by using secondary agents. People, animals, weather, all kinds of stuff. By using secondary agents to accomplish His purposes, which means we secondary agents need to act and we need to think and we need to listen and we need to process. We need to move with purpose and intentionality in this world. With a Godward mind, absolutely, but using our minds. Active. Abigail did not just say, let's pray about it. She probably prayed. doesn't say. I bet she prayed. But she also said, quick and quietly, get some stuff. What we do matters. And we need to be clear about that. Be very clear. That, that's, that's how God has formed the world. And so, pausing here before we move on, Pausing here, we see that this tells us something about how He works. God has so formed the world that what we do matters. So, so we must act and engage and think. And it tells us something about, since we're talking about how He preserves people from sin, about how He uses one to preserve another. That should say something about our need for other and our need to be the other. Yeah, God's at work in, in your life and in your life. But God may be at work in your life through your life. He preserves David here by using Abigail, a woman who was thinking it through and acting. We are to be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper, willing to be used in another's life or to have another used in our lives, our life. We need to be clear about that, but we also need to be clear then, moving on, that this is God doing the work. God is the one doing the preserving, not us. While verse 33 does say, blessed be you, Abigail, for preserving me the other three times, blessed be the Lord for restraining, for keeping. And right before it credits Abigail in verse 33, David says, bless God for sending you to me. Over and over and over again. It's the Lord who's doing this. Using Abigail, it's the Lord who's doing it. This is the preserving work of the Lord. Bless God that He preserves David and all of His saints. You. You. We are walking through a world full of of challenge, or another word, full of opportunity, or another word, full of temptation. Under constant threat, under constant attack, lured by the siren's call, come over this way and find blessing, but all you'll find there are shipwrecking rocks. Come. 
Here's the shortcut that leads to where you want to go. And in fact, where you know you should be, to where you have been promised to rest. Come. And it's death there. And it's the same thing always. It's the same thing as in the previous chapter. It's the same thing as in the previous chapter. It's the same thing as in the previous chapter. If the enemy finds the front door locked, he will jiggle the side door. It is the same thing. Maybe you aren't lured by by the offer of financial security now. However, you might be lured by physical pleasure. Maybe that gets your attention. Or maybe not physical pleasure, but physical rest and ease. Or maybe nothing physical at all. Maybe it's just about personal honor and respect. The side door, you'll jiggle that handle. The back door, the basement. He's looking for a way in at you to say, there, do you see it? Look, 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 look. The blessing, the promise, the rest, the hope. Who are you? Uh, this one. You can get it. Come. It can be yours. Uh, don't, why wait? The fact that he keeps it from you right now is evidence that he's not for your good. Why wait? Come this way. There has no doubt been a, dis, a disservice done to David. A, dis, a great dishonor paid to him. Just like Saul's been doing for years. Even in the same language of Saul. And for some reason, David says no to Saul. Yes to Nabal. I don't know why. It's different. Why is it different in any of us? But it's the same thing. There are things, there are blessings, there are There are promises laid out for you, but you cannot take them now with your own hands. You cannot take a shortcut to them. You cannot stop trusting God over the long haul through pain and affliction all the way, but you will be lured. You have an enemy. You will be lured. And He seeks to lay out before you that which would destroy you. Maybe emotionally, maybe politically or interpersonally, spiritually, worst of all. On the line in front of you, Christian, in front of you are opportunities. Let me say this very carefully. Listen carefully. That would shipwreck your faith. In the same way that laid in front of David are opportunities that would deprive him of the kingdom. Oh, that can't happen to me. I'm a Christian. How that can't happen to you because you're a Christian is by God graciously intervening to preserve you. How does he do that? That's the next point. We'll come to that. It is not an automatic, regardless, nobody has to do anything. God has to intervene to preserve the saints. God intervenes to keep David. That is good news. That is good news. It tells you something. You have one at your side who is a warrior for you, who himself made promise and who himself intervenes to keep you from destroying that promise. There should be great encouragement here. How he does that is the next point. I'm going to come to that. Rest for for a moment. Rest in God and see, I am challenged. I am threatened. I am under attack. Lured constantly to something that if I reached up and grabbed it, it would kill me. Bless God that he providentially works to save me, to save you from that. To keep you from it. He doesn't keep us from all sin. The the text ends with David and sin. He has a purpose for that too. But he keeps us. He preserves us from self-destruction. Spiritually self-destroying. How he does that is the second point. presses further into how God preserves. And as we see this, we see more more of of God's goodness to us and then a little more of how we should be involved with each other. Here's the point. 
He preserves us by reminding us of His kingdom promises. He preserves us by reminding us of His kingdom promises. In the passage, obviously, he physically intervenes with, with Abigail coming, and obviously she stops him from attacking with the sword. She sends a gift. She comes in person, and we see, you know, oh, good. He doesn't, doesn't slaughter all those people. Whew. Disaster averted. And, and yes, David has been preserved, sort of. It's half the story. It's only half the story, not enough, because we have to think about where the whole story came from. There's something back here that David on a mission comes from. So let's look back in the story a little bit. I guess what I'm saying here is that if we look only at the catastrophic sin, we miss the first sin. What leads to verse 13's strap on your sword? What leads to that? Well, he tells us in the flashback section of verses 21 and 22. Here, this is the attitude that's behind the attack. Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has, and he has returned evil to me for this good. So they're dead. That's 21 and 22. Surely in vain I have guarded this man and he has returned evil to me for good. If, if what follows next, rather than so they're dead, if what follows next is, but I will not lift my hand against him. Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be lifted against him. Instead, I will entrust myself to him who judges justly and let him plead my cause like he said last chapter. If that's what follows next, we're okay. Because David's still holding faithful to the Lord. He's recognizing a problem and he's holding faithful to the Lord and it's saying, you defend my cause. I cast all of my anxieties and all my troubles on you and entrust myself to you. But he doesn't. So the problem that's there is what leads to the raid. The problem that's there is what God needs to address if He's going to preserve David, if He's going to preserve us. He cannot only preserve you by stopping the action. We all know. We, we all know. You come across a man who's walking down a dark street with $100 in his pocket looking for someone. And she says... 200, and it doesn't happen. He has not been preserved. You get what I'm saying? I'm, I'm trying to speak a little bit obliquely here, but clearly also. You get what I'm saying? Think about it for a second if you don't. He has not been preserved because he also has an ATM card. Get it? If God's going to preserve him, he's got to do something in here that leads him to be there looking. He's, he's got to address something in here that is the departure from the Lord that is first, that leads to the departure that we would see with our eyes. David's problem, and, and our problem before the action, David's problem, the root problem, there in all of us is this in vain have I done good and all I have got for it is bad. I want some good and I want it right now and I'm going to get it. Because I feel like God's ripping me off and He's abandoned me and has left me to trouble and despair. And again and again, how many, how many years, how many years can you bear that without saying, I want it finally now. Give it. That's the problem going on. God has ripped me off. And how you fight that, how you preserve from that, which leads to the action to get it, how you preserve from that is seen in what Abigail does, sent by God. 
She speaks to him the promise of God. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. The Lord has restrained you. He's he that work in you. The Lord will establish a sure house for you, David. The Lord will hold your hands as there is no sin in you. The Lord will hold your, your life in His hands wrapped up in the bundle of the ones He loves, cared for. And all of those who are your enemies and all those who abuse you and get their way with you, He'll cast them out like a stone out of a sling. Remember that? He's done that before. Before, Remember that? Remember that? Remember that? He's done that before. He holds you. He will establish you. And when He has done good according to all that He has spoken concerning you and has made you prince, that day is coming. That day is coming. Remember me. She reminds him of what has been promised, which God used and brought David with ears open to hear. That's how God preserved David. He didn't physically stop the sword, change his heart with the truth of God. Laid out before us, every moment of every day, Christian, is a challenge to you. Forget God and get the things you want yourselves right now. And if you go that way, Christian, if you go that way, you will kill yourself spiritually. But bless God that it's not up to you to keep yourself. Bless God that He preserves the saints. And He preserves the saints with the truth. He pours it on down through the ages and lays it in front of you and says, Look, 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 a sure house. The kingdom is coming. You have a seat in it. Hold fast to me. I hold your life in my hands and all of your enemies will be cast out. Believe. That word spoken is how God preserves. And He opens your eyes by grace to hear it, to see it, to receive it, and to be changed. It is the preserving work of God by means of His promises. Not distinct from, not separate from, by means of His promises. Spoken, heard, and believed. This is a good work of God. We walk through life challenged, just like David. We walk through life challenged, like the poet of Psalm 73. In vain have I kept my heart clean. In vain have I pursued washing my hands in innocence. Look what they have, and look what I don't. And look how they party, and look how I suffer, and look how they laugh, and look how I cry. And in the midst of all of that, which is the jiggling at the side door for you, in the midst of all of that, God in His promise says, keep looking. Keep looking. Look. Behold the kingdom promised to you, secured for you in my crucified and risen Son. Christian, believe this. It is your only defense against the shortcut offers that come again and again and again, never ceasing. Never ceasing. Believe this. It has been proven secure to you. There is an empty tomb. Proven secure. He has been raised. He lives. He lives inside of you. Look at the self-destructive sin and look at the God of glory and goodness and grace as He speaks to you a better word and holds out to you a better hope. There is one who preserved David and He preserves you. He's good. He's mighty to save you. Not just once a time ago, but day by day by day to save you. He's good to you. Can there be anything on earth that you desire beside Him? Oh, my flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can you say that? God is at work in you to persuade you of it. These promises of God that He lays out in front of you. Let me, oh, let me encourage you with this. The promises of God laid out in front of you 
are all throughout the Scripture, and they are not. Oh, brothers and sisters, that you would approach the Word of God not looking for techniques by which I live, but looking for the one who over you stretches his strong hands and who you can trust to give you life. The promises of God are not about this and thus and so, and here's how I walk. The promises of God are Christ delivered to you and Christ delivering the kingdom to you to the glory of God the Father. Trust Him. So read, read, looking for God and His goodness, looking for God and what He has said is coming. Read, and then in the words of First Peter 1, oh, First Peter 1, I love First Peter. First Peter 1 might be becoming my favorite chapter in the Bible. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. I was talking in our family this last week about what that, what that is. You might have a footnote. Gird up the loins of your minds. The footnote will, will tell you. To gird up the loins was to gather up all of the low-hanging clothing Tuck it in the belt because now we're going to run or we're going to fight or we're going to work. we got something to do. So you need to clear away the clutter and get ready. Gird up the loins of your mind. You've got work to do. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not half on that grace and half on the grace that could be acquired if that schmuck would get in line. I know how to make that schmuck get in line. Swords. It's Sauline. It'll cost you the kingdom. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when Christ comes. When the kingdom in all its fullness comes. Hope in Him. Christian, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober-minded. There is work to do here. But it is the work of seeing and believing. And I come to this every day to fight. I, I, I do not, I was telling some, some guys this last week, I don't roll out of bed rejoicing in Jesus. I gotta fight this every single day. I'm X number of years old and I've been walking with Jesus for Y number of years and I still have to fight every day. You have to fight to gird up the loins of your mind. You don't approach this looking for technique. You approach this looking for God and you cry out, God, reveal yourself. God, show yourself. God, pour into my mind onto seeing eyes truth that preserves me from self-destruction. And I need it. We come to God hopeful, begging, begging, but in great confidence and hope. He is a preserving God and He has begun a good work in you, Christian, and He will carry it on to completion, never leaving nor forsaking you. Bless the Lord. Let me pray. Oh God, I thank You that You providentially preserve us by means of Your promises. You are kind and marvelous. But we, Lord, if we are honest, many of us on many days, we struggle to have hearts warmed. We, we cry out to You. We struggle to have hearts warmed, moved to follow You. So please, as was prayed already, would You pour out Your Spirit on us in this moment, but tomorrow and Thursday, pour out Your Spirit on us and give us sight to see the glory of the kingdom to regard the treasures of Egypt as nothing by comparison. Give us sight for this. Preserve Your people by calling them forward in faith. Give them eyes alert to the temptation. Give them ears that hear the hiss. Remind them, Lord. Remind them of who You are. Remind them of what You've promised and preserve them with the truth of Your promises. Keep Your people and make a church, I pray, that are an honor to Your name. And it is in the name of Christ that we pray.
Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.